welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. Quick programming note up top, this episode is more accurately identified as Great Moments in Hash History because we will be talking with one of the most influential voices in the world of contemporary cannabis concentrates, a woman who began her hashish journey in Amsterdam in 1964 when she went down to the docks to score off sailors coming in from exotic ports of call. She soon after opened an early forerunner of that city's legendary cannabis coffee shops before spending many years living in India, Afghanistan, and other traditional hashish producing regions. This episode is going to take us all over the hash map. And then upon returning home, the hero of this tale absolutely changed the game as one of Amsterdam's top cannabis growers and as the inventor of an era-defining device for modern hash makers called the Pollinator. I speak, of course, of Mila Jansen, the hash queen of the Netherlands. Mila is someone I first met about 20 years ago when I visited Amsterdam for the first time to work at the Cannabis Cup. And I've got to say, she does have a rather regal presence, but also a very wry sense of humor. Above all else, Mila is dedicated to this plant and to this culture. She elevated the art of hashish making a few decades ago and then never stopped innovating. Before we all inhale my conversation with Mila, I do need to quickly thank everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon. All of you throwing in on this shit is what's keeping me going, honestly. And now for the rest of you, as you listen to this episode, all I ask is that you please reflect on the value of telling these stories, preserving this history, and sharing it with people all over the world. And if you can throw in on this shit and want bonus content, the video version of the podcast, secret sessions, and extras like a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, please check us out at Great Moments in Weed History. Dot com. That's easy to remember, and you can join for just a dollar a month at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And speaking of supporting authentic, independent cannabis media, Mila is also currently on the cover of Skunk Magazine, good friends of ours over there, so be sure to pick up a copy of that fine publication. Now, obviously, I had to select some hash to light up before getting into this episode with a true OG legend. My first experiences with hash were actually all in Amsterdam, and I remain personally very partial to the imported varieties available there from Nepal, India, Morocco, as well as what is known as nader hash, or non-solvent hash made in the Netherlands. I've got a pipe right here, and I'm holding it up for everyone on Patreon to see, that is packed with some beautiful ice water hash like you would find on a coffee shop menu in Amsterdam. If you want to learn more about all the different kinds of hash on the market, including today's dizzying array of resins, rosins, and dabs of all kinds, please go back in the Great Moments in Weed History archives and check out our 710 special episode from 2021. The title on that one was Celebrating Hashes High Holiday with an IRL Sesh. That was our first time getting lit with the crew 
after lockdown. And in that one, I also got a crash course in cannabis concentrates from two heady experts. And not coincidentally, I also got higher than on any other episode of this podcast by a factor of 10 or maybe 420. Who can remember? Now, let's get ready for this Weeds interview with Mila. But wait, I'm hearing through the hash wires that some of you are not as lit as you would like to be. And all I can tell you is there is a proven remedy for this situation you find yourself in. And it is to simply hit pause and you can use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to somehow source yourself some beautiful hashish from the foothills of Nepal or India. And once you've done that and you have hit on pause, I can promise you this, that once you're ready, we will all be ready for another great moment in weed history. Hello, Mila. It is such an incredible honor to have you here on Great Moments in Weed History, although I think this might be a bit of an episode of Great Moments in Hash History as well. Okay. <laughs> I'm very honored to be here. Very nice to be here talking to you. Thank you. So we like to begin these conversations by asking... When did the cannabis plant, in any form, first come into your life? This was in 1964. It was in Amsterdam. At that time, there were no coffee shops. There was not any weed in Amsterdam, even. You would have to go down to the harbor and the pubs by the harbor. They would get sailors, I presume. They paid their beer bill with the hash they would import. And then from the pub guys, you could get the hash. That was the only way you could buy any. Where was the hash coming in from in those days? From Pakistan, from Africa, you know, wherever ships were coming from. <laughs> and what inspired you to do that? What what made you seek out uh, hashish or cannabis for the for the first time? My uh, boyfriend, he was studying medicine, and he was interested to in the effect of hash on the person. So he actually bought it for me, and I remember rolled the first joint and I was just rolling on the floor laughing and laughing and laughing couldn't stop laughing and uh, realized that it was love at first talk <laughs> <laughs> with the joint if not perhaps that boyfriend <laughs> exactly <laughs> and so this sounds like you were literally experimenting you were this is all the way back in 1964 and and you were looking at the medicinal uh benefits of the plant what made you decide like I'm going to continue to do this and at the time was it something you were worried about in terms of the law in the Netherlands, you know, there were no coffee shops yet. What was the scene like at that time? I guess it was an underground scene, but um, I wasn't really worried at all. 
And I just liked it a lot. And I don't know if I was immediately looking at the medicinal side of it. I think I was more of a recreational smoker and just enjoyed it. And I kept that up until only maybe 10, 15 years ago, thinking I was just a recreational smoker. When I realized at my age, and never really having been sick or anything, it had been my medicine all along. <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously, now you can look back. These were your first earliest experiences, but you know, you've... Uh, consumed and created concentrates and hashish and explored cannabis all over the world over all the ensuing years. Do you remember anything about the quality of what you were getting down on the docks in 1964 and, and how it might relate to what uh, you've experienced since? Uh, three years later, I started hitchhiking to India with my daughter and we came to Afghanistan. And that's the first country that I felt this hash was really special. And I really liked it a lot. Before we get to uh, hit the road to Afghanistan, often, you know, once you sort of discover cannabis, you start to discover other cannabis people. You know, this is just before, I think, the coffee shops just started opening, which I know you had a huge role in. What was what was circling around at that time that, that led to those changes in Dutch society? Well, for me personally, I felt that we all were feeling our government was getting involved too much in our private lives by this you can do, this you can do. Of course, compared to now, it was negligible. But um, in those days, that's what the provosts were there. Actually, they were there to provoke, to show the people what the police were really like. And mind you, the coffee shops didn't start till six years later. They started in 72. I was long gone by then. I left in 68. Tell me about what what else was going on in your in your life in those days when you were uh, discovering cannabis. You were part of this uh, political movement challenging the authorities. What what were you doing to make a living? What was your day to day life like? Yes, I uh, opened a boutique, uh, and it was uh, quite successful because we were the first uh, boutique to open where you could buy a miniskirt. I mean, people, girls could cut off their skirts and have a miniskirt, but we actually sold them. But in the end, because we made all the clothes ourselves, we had three tailors in the back sewing night and day. And there was also the time of Timothy Leary, Jr. and drop out. And uh, this, uh, having tailors sit there all week, uh, working was like not really where it was at, according to us. So... We decided we turned it into a tea shop and we just sold teas. And uh, that became very popular, in fact, because we used to get people come by from the East bringing hashish. And we even got some Americans that had torn up their passports, not wanting to go to Vietnam, and they would bring LSD. So it was quite a magic time in Amsterdam in those days. So it sounds like you've got a spot where uh, tea is on the menu, tea like you drink, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 regular yeah. tea, you might call we it. Had but... five, we have sold five herbal teas. We sold kites and uh, peacock feathers and uh, I don't know, stuff like that. How we served dinner, our uh, cook used to go to the market at the end of the day and prick up all free veggies 
so he could serve a meal for one gelder in those days. Poor people, Chinese food. Uh, for one and a half gelder, you'd get tofu added. <laughs> wow. And also, if people gave him a piece of hash, he was very good at making uh, hash omelets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think I can understand why this place was popular. You can yeah. come in, uh, guilders yeah. being the currency of the Netherlands at that time. You wouldn't have to have too many guilders in your pocket. You could get a nice hot cup of tea, maybe come in out of one of those cold uh, Amsterdam windy days, have a little tea, chat people up, have a nice meal. And then I maybe think we were, uh, that we were maybe the first coffee shop, but we were not because we never sold anything. We only shared and traded. So whatever came got shared or traded, never sold. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So the, LS, uh, the LSD and the hashish were just off menu uh, little uh, little bonuses. And if you if you close your eyes, what did it look like in there? What was the vibe of the shop and what was the uh, the people who came like? It was uh, beautiful in there because one of the last things to be done in our boutique was buy a container full of Persian carpets. So half we turned into coats and skirts. And the other half we just put up on the walls and we had gold and red wallpaper. And it was a magic place inside that shop. Wow. So it seems like before you had even journeyed to a lot of these sort of traditional hashish producing regions, mm. you were really interested in that culture and kind of bringing a representation of it to people in Amsterdam. Yeah, well, we just happened to have all the carpets. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the image we did want to bring. And we realized later when I was in Afghanistan, they do the same with their carpets. They also hang them on the wall. <laughs> Beautiful. And so what, what became of the, of the tea house? Well, in the end, the Amsterdam government wasn't too fond of what was all going on. And I think maybe our neighbors complained sometimes. Anyway, they tried to uh, come and bust us, but luckily they never found anything. In the end, uh, I decided to leave. You know, when, uh, when people don't want you there, better just bend with the wind and move on. I'd always been interested in the philosophy of countries like India, Tibet, China even. It was full of uh, good uh, feelings that we left. Also, we were wanting to find a place where we could run our society as we really wanted to run it. <laughs> wow. And so this is an era where I've, I've heard people describe it as sort of a hippie trail. Yeah. Um, is that what you would say you set off on? And, and, and how did that journey go? I know you went to India, but what was the route that you took there? And, and what did you experience along the way? We set off in a van, but we got out before Istanbul arguing with the driver. <laughs> so we got out before Istanbul and then we hitchhiked a long way, Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan. But there they had uh, really fantastic hash. Yes, I was very fond of that one. Uh, Afghanistan specifically? Yes. When we first arrived in Afghanistan, we had to walk the last bit and uh, arrived at midnight at the border. And after we had some tea and food, uh, custom, the police came over and they brought a hookah and they filled that hookah. 
and they shared that hookah with all of us. And then they said, welcome to Afghanistan. <laughs> this was at midnight <laughs> in September in 68, long before the Russians came, long before the Americans came. So you didn't have to wonder where you could smoke hookah because every chai shop, every restaurant, they would have their own hookahs. Even the people were selling uh, clothes or, or guns you could also buy there. Everybody had their own hookah and we just shared it. I think also because we were also fond of the hookah that they took quite a liking to us hippies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. So this was a two-way uh, two exchange. Yeah, this, it became like uh, you were brothers in a way. Yeah. So. And you mentioned a couple of times sort of a performance a, a particular fondness for the hashish in Afghanistan. What what set it apart? What what made it so special to you? I only learned that about three months ago, <laughs> when I when I asked an Afghani friend and I said to him, I said I was in your country in '68, and that hash was just wonderful. I said later in India for twenty years, I would always get Afghani if I could. I said later, I went to Europe, I went to America, I went to South America. I never found that same quality hash. I said, what do you guys do? And he said, well, we wait until the first snow falls before we harvest. So I'm calculating this is probably at least three weeks, if not four weeks longer than we would ever leave it after to, after we would harvest it. And then he said, explained it also. He said, all that time, Terpenes, cannabinoids, even the crystals are growing until they're so big they're bursting, and that's when they harvest. Wow, that's quite a, a that's quite a vision to imagine the the huge, really fields of cannabis that grow there with the snow on the ground, and uh, it's uh, it seems like they invented live resin, maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> yes. <laughs> it certainly. Uh, uh, makes you wonder that they wait till the snow falls. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, but from your from your first idea of this trip, it sounds like India was uh, your destination that yeah. you had in mind. Um, yeah. What what did you hope to find there, and what what did you find there when you when you made it uh, that far? I just love the thought in India. They got thousands of gods. We only got one god. You know, it's kind of boring. There they got so many festivals to celebrate. All these gods have birthdays and special events, and their whole concept of the world is different than ours. You know, cannabis is is uh, uh, a part of Hinduism in, in certain aspects in ancient texts and in more yeah, modern. Yeah, 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 yeah. What? What? Where, yeah. How did you experience that that aspect of it? Well, when we first came to India. Uh, somehow we ran out of money for a while and we ended up living in temples where the sadhus, these are with their dreadlocks and turbans and they smoked chillums from morning to night. And we also started, smoke, or I started smoking chillums before breakfast. And uh, for them, it's a, a quick way to become one with their deity, Shiva. Yeah, and we, we we've got some, a pretty hip people listen to this podcast. But if you could explain uh, what a chillum is, how it works. Um. Okay, uh, chillum is just a kind of a 
clay tube, it's a bit narrower at one end. And then you have quite a large stone inside that just lets the air pass along. And at the top, you fill it up with hash, sometimes only hash, or sometimes a small layer of tobacco they use, or I guess you could use weed also. And then you wrap a cloth around, a damp cloth around the bottom, and hold it up against your cheek so it's standing up. And you kind of don't put the end of the chillum in your mouth, but you hold the cup it with your hand so that you can inhale it. Bomboli nat. This means it's your offering to the gods. It's a very special way to smoke. It's quite, uh, now I can't handle it these days. At 78, I can't put my lungs through smoking the chillum anymore. Alas. <laughs> 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 to those uh, uh, listening only, uh, we are smoking some some nice joints. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I know you still enjoy, uh, obviously, hashish and many other other forms. Yeah. So, yeah. So fret not. Um, and and you know, at w- at what point did you think to yourself, uh, if you can see it, I'm holding a chillum. Oh, beautiful. Yes. And then you smoke it like this. And it's coming up like that. Turn it around. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, like this. Chaka. Nice. Yeah. Did you reach Goa on this first trip? Oh, yes. In uh, 68, there were 11 farms. That was it. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, we hung out a lot together. And we had no electricity, no music. Somebody had a flute and some people had tablas. And that's what we'd play all night long. That was it. And then the next year, there was already like 2,000 people. And then 5,000. And then it just took off from there. I don't know. It was just beautiful to be there and walk along the beach and the little villages and go to the local market and down to the beach. And if you help the fishermen, they give you some free fish at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a I guess that day. Was, <laughs> yes, that was kind of the paradise we were looking for. <laughs> what led to you leaving there, and and where did you go next? I had to leave India. I had the permission to stay for many many years, and I suddenly decided that even though my kids were going to school there, so we came back to Holland. Up until that time, I was going every year actually. <laughs> Um, and about what year did you return to Holland, just to set the set the scene? 88. 1988. And what is, uh, so you've been gone quite a long time. What yeah. is going on with cannabis in Holland? What do you return to? A city full of coffee shops, hundreds of them. They're all selling loads of weed that I'd never come across because wherever I traveled, people only smoked hash. The hash that they actually had there, I wasn't too fond of because most of it came from Morocco. People think that Moroccans have been making hash for a long time, but they haven't. I was in Morocco in 65 when there was no hash. People smoked what they called whiskey, which was chopped up flowers with black tobacco, but it wasn't hash. That they basically learned from hippies coming back from Asia, wherever, and they taught them how to make hash. 
but I was spoiled with the hash I was getting in India. But coming back to Holland, I also had four kids to support. And at that time, growing wasn't looked down as, as much as it is nowadays. I'd always been having vegetable gardens, so the challenge to grow marijuana, I was quite ready to go for it. And I'd learned how to make clones. And all my buddies who were growing at that time in Amsterdam didn't know about clones. So I got a job as the clone maker for starters. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so I'll, I'll just explain to people clones is um, simply just taking a cut, yeah. a little cutting off of a plant that you already know is female. That's one of the main yeah. things. So that and you know the genetics, you know the genetics, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. So this is a big, uh, big innovation in terms of efficiency and, um, you know, how much good cannabis you can grow in the same space. It was hard work. Uh, no, but it was uh, good and it helped pay for all the kids' education, everything. So that's made it all very worthwhile. And did you find the coffee shop world, um, the people who were running the shops, the people who were cultivating, the people who were bringing hashish in, did you find it to be a good community that you liked to be a part of? Did it have an element of danger and criminality, you know, particularly as a woman? How did, how did you experience the coffee shop world of that era? I must say I usually sold uh, to a place I don't know. It was like a wholesaler for coffee shops. Coffee shops would go to his place to buy their weed. No, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. And yeah. what what were the varieties of cannabis in in the 1980s that you were cultivating? Uh, we had uh, Cologne arrived in a bunch of flowers from California called the Orange Bud. And all the time I was growing, we only grew orange, but said to each other, if uh, we knew of anything better, we changed, but we didn't. So we stuck to orange, but, but I must say, I didn't really have all that much time to hang out in coffee mm -hmm. shops. So was, you know, when you're growing 30 different gardens in one city, if those plants <laughs> need you, you got to be there. Otherwise you could count 5%, 10% loss of harvest. So... Oh. And then having four kids as well, I, I don't know when I really had time to go and hang out in a coffee shop. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I'll, I'll take one of those walk down the beach and help the fishermen days. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 13 gardens and four kids. Uh, yeah. Blessings. I'd help. I wasn't doing it alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you have the feeling beyond... Um, Obviously, having a personal connection to this plant and to cannabis and hashish, um, did you have a sense that this was a political activity? I could say for myself um, years later, but going to Amsterdam for the first time and um, accessing cannabis and being able to uh, enjoy it in a coffee shop for the first time in my life, not worried about being arrested the next second um, was very powerful. And for a lot of people gave them that vision of what uh, life could be could like. Be like yes. yeah. yeah. Was that something that was important to you and, and, and a part of why you were doing this? 
no. <laughs> I had four kids that wanted to eat three times a day. And because they grew up in India, they spoke English, so they had to go to expensive schools. <laughs> gotcha. I think I'm going to chalk this up to just not enough time to worry about. And then uh, it was also during this time, because I had the material, because I was growing, that I got to make the pollinator. I had seen in Afghanistan and different places how the people make hash over a flat screen and kind of the waffleman material over it, and the crystals fall through the screen. So I was doing that. After all, I smoked hash and like the hash I made from the orange bud better than what they were selling in the coffee shops. Then one night I'm standing in front of a clothes dryer where all the clothes are tumbling and I think, oh my God, that's what I'm doing with the weed, with the dried flowers and small manicuring leaves. Next day we got a secondhand clothes dryer, ripped out the heat, and I think we tied just a piece of screen around the drum and threw in some dry material. And low presto, the crystals fell down. And I could make 20 joints in 20 minutes instead of one joint in 20 minutes. That was, of course, the true reason for inventing the pollinator. <laughs> <laughs> this is another great moment in Ash history. Um, I think this, I, I don't know. Then I, I, don't, I would I, like, <laughs> then I would get friends and give them some and try it and everything. And I said, Oh, that's so strong. <laughs> to think that was just dry sift. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one one thing maybe to just pause and, and bring people along is what is hashish and, and and what what were the different methods? How did each build on the other? Um we don't have to go into a ton of detail, but a lot of people really may not even know. The one uh, I know, the very first person I met on the High Times Cup in Amsterdam, and I showed her the pollinator and said, it's to make hash. And she said, oh, I always thought that came from a factory, <laughs> <laughs> like a chocolate factory. <laughs> so, yeah, people didn't know. <laughs> a lot of people sifted over a screen. And then in northern India, they're quite famous for rumming it. So you have a bud in between your hands and you just slowly go up and after a while all the trichomes will be stuck to your hand palms and you can scrape them off and that's called charas. And it's a different way. People like charas very much. It has a different taste. It depends on the person's hands probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 bit. yeah. It does get the natural oils. And so in, in essence, you know, if if you picture a cannabis bud, um, those crystals, as they're sometimes called, really trichomes, are oil-filled little tiny sacks. You can see them very well under a microscope and a little bit with the naked eye. And that is where the vast majority of the cannabinoids that you really want to ingest are. I think and, they're all there. <laughs> they're all there. And the terpenes. Yes. And that little skin is just a bit of cellulose. 
Um, and so, and the terpenes are, 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 have their own beneficial, uh, effects, but also are, uh, the, the, the smell and the taste. So by separating those trichomes, those little oil filled sacs, uh, from the rest of the plant matter, you are going to have hashish or concentrates, and that's going to be more potent. It's going to be more fragrant, and it's going to be a lot uh, more durable. It will last longer. It's easier to smuggle. It's easier to store and transport. Um, and so uh, if you have dry sift, that will smell and taste more. And then, of course, we also have isolator, bubbleator, ice water hash. Mm-hmm. It'll smell less, it'll taste less, but it's got I'm stronger, and I must say, I prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. But let's get back. So now that we, we have a little bit of the basics down, um, so the pollinator, as you said, ju- kind of automated a process that was um very very old in traditional methods and made it a lot more efficient you have uh, uh you know you started with a, a a washing machine that you sort of adapted to this process what yeah. what happened next how did this change the change the game within 4 months we were already on the front cover of uh, high times magazine pollinator new hash or something it said it's now nearly 30 years ago that the pollinator came on the market. But if uh, whoever has my book can turn to the page where it shows where all the machines went in the world, apart from Antarctica, I don't think there's many places that machines didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to imagine they make good ice hash up, uh, in Antarctica. So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. probably why. You know, you've obviously been very associated with hash because of these innovations, but, you know, we're both smoking a joint right now. I know you love fl- the flower and the plant as well. What were some touchstones for you as we went from that era of sort of the earliest hybrids to, um, the real explosion of different varieties that was really led by the Amsterdam seed companies and breeders of that era? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of new kinds then. But not as much later, I would go to the States and then every year I'd come, there'd be like 200 new varieties. <laughs> <laughs> and then people would say, oh, Mita, which one do you like best? I'd say I'd need a year to try them all. <laughs> oh, damn it. No, I don't know. There's so many varieties nowadays. But in those days also when we were making, I was personally making hash in the beginning. I had no knowledge about trichomes or cannabinoids. Those words didn't exist in my world. And we just had two categories, good or bad. And so <laughs> now that... Now these young kids come to me and give me half an hour chemical explanation of what it's all gone through. <laughs> it's a, yeah, quite a different world. Hash making has gone to a whole new level. How do you feel about that? I'm, you know, on on one level, I think it makes for a lot of innovations and new experiences. But do you think something uh, maybe more? essential or cultural has not been focused on? I always think that it's good any industry should evolve. Otherwise, it's going to die out. Look at architecture, look at fashion, and look at the weed culture, look at the hash culture. 
Now there's so many different things people can make and do, and it's just astounding. Actual fact, next year I want to take a course on how to make hash because all I know is how to use a pollinator, isolator, and mobilator. And I'm curious about all these things that people come up with. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, 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 I am, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I do what I do. I'm not a hash maker, but I, would, uh, I can only imagine the cold uh, sweat that would run down a hash teacher's uh, brow as they look in the first row of class and, and see you there. So definitely uh, send an email, uh, let them get ready for that. Um, and then I've, I've always heard my, my first time uh, in Amsterdam was in 2002 when I, I started working at the Cannabis Cup and I was already hearing, oh, you should have been here when the Hemp Hotel was was open. Uh, Tell me about yeah. that. Oh, the Hemp Hotel was very nice. Uh, it never made any money because it only had five rooms. And only later did I learn that the hotel to make money, you need 20 rooms. So we had five rooms. But it made it because it was always pretty full. And we had a night bar uh, where people could smoke and have their beer or whatever else they wanted. And, um, yeah, so I was always really... Uh, a nice thing, and uh, each room had a theme. So we had an Afghan room, a Tibet room, an India room, a Moroccan room. And what was the fifth one? <laughs> the amnesia room. <laughs> <laughs> now we had different countries that were involved in Africa. Nice. And it sounds like it brought you, you know, back kind of full circle to having the tea house of of having you know the plant is so important to us and the hashish is so important to us but there's also the culture and it's really vital you know we're still fighting in the united states just having the beginning of some social spaces opening in a few places. Um, and that was always such a big part of the Amsterdam experience for travelers. Uh, you know, I would always explain to people, the people who come to the Cannabis Cup from other countries, they smoke every day. Yeah. It's not, they're not coming to smoke. They're coming for that experience of being accepted and having a place to interact with other people. And so what what are what's like a really good memory of like what a great night or an event or an experience that happened in the Hemp Hotel uh that you, you think back on? Oh, there were so many. The last night we were there, people could paint on the walls because the <laughs> landlord wanted it back. He refused to invent it to us any longer. And he thought we were making loads of money on it and he wanted in on it. And he wanted to turn it into a five-star hotel. But the rooms weren't big enough to hold a five-star bed. And there was <laughs> one crummy toilet and one little shower for all the five rooms. So how he wanted to change that into a five-star place, I don't know. Well, one, one star per room. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so the, 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 it sounds like the hotel got a, a, a makeover. Uh, remodeling, but then uh, you had to close. Um, I want to encourage everybody to 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 watch, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes. Uh, the movie that you made, Mila's Journey, uh, uh, this is around yeah. 
mid 2000s. Tell me um, what inspired that and, 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 and how you made the film. Uh, it was my sister and her friends, and they wanted to make a documentary about women. And so they were looking for women that had old footage. And I'd played in a movie in the 60s. And I had some publicity with the tea house and everything in the boutique. So I had some old footage and had old photos. So I became their first victim. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And it turned out a very nice movie. It won lots of prizes and uh, still anywhere I show it, people really like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about the, the, the original footage and, and the journey that you went on in the film. Okay. Well, originally uh, I'd done a track with my daughter and my husband at that time. And it took us three months and we walked 900 kilometers right through the Himalayas. And he filmed that on an eight millimeter camera. Alas, there was no sound to it, but it's an amazing film. We come to nomads. We've never really seen white people before. We come in villages that looked as if they never moved on past the year 1000. (laughs) And And this is uh, what what year, the original? This was in 76. 75 I walked and then 76 he came with us with the camera and we made the film and part of that film my sister used in her film um, but that footage had had sat uh, for decades up until that yeah point. yeah 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 because my husband and me split up at some point and being mad at each other he had half the film and I'd half the film so you couldn't do anything with half the film. But then he got very sick, and um, I decided to uh, ask him for the other half, and I had it uh, digitized so that we could actually watch it. So we did together just before he passed away. That was quite interesting. Wow. And this inspired you to, in essence, try to recreate part of that journey, right? Yeah. 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 What was it like to go back so many years later? How had um, the scene around hashish changed? Officially, it's illegal in India, I think. But then it's tradition that the sadhu smoke it. Any kind of wise man can smoke it. it. On their local population, it wasn't looked down on until us uh, foreigners came and kind of ruined it for everybody, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> had the had the methods of of cultivation or uh, hashish production changed? It used to uh, grow locals. Maybe would plant it, or maybe it grew naturally. Even there were huge swaths where it just grew naturally. But what happened then? Then foreigners would come and they would bring their own seeds, and we'd start planting them. And this is a question that. Or a problem that's been having all over the world. It's been happening in Thailand, up in Manali. Uh, it's happening in South America. And I don't know if it's such a good thing that these Western seeds are going around the world. And uh, as it's wind blown, it would affect the local land races. 
And that was so unique within every area there, its own particular land races and with its own tastes and qualities. And I don't know, in the end, it might end up as a kind of <laughs> unisar soup. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty much the same anywhere you get it from. I hope not. Yeah. Well, I would uh, uh, direct listeners to uh, check out uh, an episode of this podcast about a group called the Indian Land Race Exchange. It's really been fascinating even over the last five years to see people from those regions um, doing that work. This brings us really up to, I, I told you we were going to go from the first time you uh, scored some weed down on the docks till yesterday. So okay, um, okay. I wanted to ask about a couple of your current endeavors. Yeah, tell me about these Dabadoo events that you've been hosting and also about your embrace of this, you know, newer style of, of making hash and concentrates. Okay, we'll start with the Dabadoo. I was just going to do it one time. And I think what's different about the Dabadoo is that it only has hash categories that have uh, dry sift, ice water hash, it might have rosin. In some countries, people might want to add another category with extracts, or we even had some categories of weed in Chile one time. You got special permission because normally weed is not part of the dabadoo. And then the other thing is what we don't have compared to normal um, uh, cups is we don't have five, six judges up there that do all the judging while everybody wakes. No, everybody is a judge. So it'll never become something for hundreds of people because who can enter enough that hundreds of people can test it? So it'll be between 150 and 200 people, and that's it. But every single one of them will be a hash lover. And I feel it's like uh, a wine tasting. You know, you get 20 bottles of excellent wine plus that everybody is bringing a bit of their own <laughs> to share with friends or whatever. You can't show up uh, empty-handed at a Dabadoo, folks. Um, wh where do you have them planned in the future? I think people might want to start making their travel plans uh, immediately upon hearing this. <laughs> well, there's one in Amsterdam on uh, December the 20th. That's the 10-year celebration. And it's still doubtful whether it's 40 Dabadoos or 42 Dabadoos in those <laughs> 10 years. But anyway, and then the next one will be about maybe four days before Spanabis starts in Barcelona. Then who knows, I'd maybe come stateside again or go to South America. But next summer I'm going trekking with all my kids and grandkids and we're going to the Himalayas one more time while I can still walk. I hope so. Anyway. <laughs> wow. So if I didn't get to South America, I will go after that. Wow. So we've even gone beyond yesterday to, to your big future plans. It has been an amazing journey just to uh, sit and talk with you about it. I can only imagine... Uh, what it's been like in in your shoes um i am so grateful to spend this time with you i'm very uh grateful to have spent some time with you in amsterdam and and around the world at different weed events over the years yeah. i yeah. 
so appreciate you sharing these stories and this uh, the wisdom so of your experiences with everyone listening to the show. Um, I do like to sometimes wrap it up. If you have, uh, you know, we've hit some huge, great moments in hash history along the way. The, yeah. uh, the tea house, um, you know, not selling cannabis, but maybe the first coffee shop in its way. And of course the pollinator and your events in your hotel. But, uh, is there a personal moment in your in your weed and your hash life um, that you would really love to sort of leave people with and and reflect on that that maybe doesn't rise to the level of a historical event, but that for you um, encapsulates uh, this journey with cannabis? In the first place, I want to say this is the best joint ever. <laughs> Just because it's not in the future, it's not in the past, it's happening right now. And I think it's a good thing to live in the here and now. Wow. Well, note taken as a history show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think that that is, uh, of all the answers uh, to that question, um, maybe the most the most beautiful and instructive one. Uh, the great moment in weed history is the moment you are experiencing right now i'm gonna have to uh light up with you <laughs> light up again <laughs> thank you so much and everyone thank you for listening please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and mila i hope to see you uh at a dabadu <laughs> i'll let you know when i'm coming your way Excellent. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. It was an honor. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.